Thank you. I'm extremely excited to be here. Uh, I was so honored when Jeff offered me the opportunity to come and spend a Sunday morning with you guys to be a part of your church experience as you come and you gather uh, to worship. And not just worship, but to hear God's word taught and to hear God's voice. Some of you guys, it's just a part of your regular routine, hearing God speak on a weekly basis. You come to church to hear that. Some of you guys, uh, more than it just being anticipatory, it's something that you desperately need this week. Maybe the holiday didn't go so well. Maybe you had a tougher week. Maybe you've had a string of tough weeks or even months, and you're here desperately seeking to hear God speak. Uh, maybe you don't know about the whole God thing. You just have questions, uh, and you're welcome to be here too. I'm extremely excited to share God's word with you, that I'd have that opportunity to be a part of that, take that very seriously. And so I'm excited to talk about that as we kick off our Advent series. We're journeying towards Christmas. We're journeying towards this huge celebration of God and his son Jesus coming and being born in a manger in this beautiful scene. And we're getting to step into that. But we don't want to just know the what of Christmas. Like we celebrate and there's trees and there's lights. But we want to know the why. Why are we so excited about this? Why are we so passionate about it? Why does this all matter? And so today we're going to be taking a look at this idea of hope. This idea of Jesus arriving, equating to it being the arrival of hope. When Jesus got here, he brought hope with him. We've all had some experience or another with hope. What it is to hope, to hope for something to go well, to hope for a relationship to grow, to hope for a relationship to be restored, to hope for a new job, a new car, to hope. We've also experienced some degree of hopelessness in our lives. Uh, like Hillary had mentioned earlier this week, my wife, she flew to Texas to visit some family, and I, I took her on Thursday morning, dropped her off at the airport, trying to be a tough guy. Uh, there are already other couples there saying their goodbyes, and so I'm just trying to hold it together and you know, give her a kiss, and it's gonna be okay, and I'll be fine. I drove home, I made myself some breakfast, I'm sitting at the table, I open up the laptop and start watching ESPN, and it's breakfast and sports, and I'm going to be okay, it'll be all right. And about two commercials in, you know, after a few highlights, I realize I'm not going to make it, <laughs> like, I don't know if this is going to work, and so I do what, you know, guys do, and I went to the gym, and I tried to, you know, work out, and hopefully that would fix it, only to make things worse. Uh, because when I came back, you work out, you're starving, right? You're hungry, it's time to eat. Well, uh, we're a little low on groceries. And so like any competent human being who's low on groceries, you go to the store, you peruse the aisles, you get what you need, and you come home and make a meal. Well, that is not what I did. I uh, drove up and down the street looking for an establishment that was open on Thanksgiving. And uh, much to my enjoyment, I arrived at the only one that was, the esteemed dining establishment that is Del Taco. <laughs> and uh, the drive-thru was packed, actually. And so I went inside. I ordered my epic Cali steak and guac burrito and a large fry. And I sat myself down at the table alone on Thanksgiving at Del Taco. If you find yourself sitting in a Del Taco on Thanksgiving, you're experiencing hopelessness. <laughs> this is a thing. We've all come to these places where we feel like things are beyond repair, they're beyond fixing. Too much has happened, too much has been said. There's too much that can't really be atoned for or apologized for. You can't take back what you did and there's nothing that could really fix what had happened. Or maybe you feel like you've become a person who is hopeless. You're beyond loving, you're beyond restoring as an individual. 
where we pick up here, Israel, God's people, are in a place of hopelessness. God is going to enter in and bring hope into a hopeless situation. But they've been overrun. They've been overrun by Babylon. They've been taken captive. The city's been overrun. They've lost everything. They've been oppressed. And in the midst of that, God makes them a prophet, makes them a promise through uh, Jeremiah. So we're going to look at this passage today and unpack it a little bit. Looking at Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16, if you guys can throw those up. Um, And it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In the middle of this hopeless situation, God says, I'm going to deliver hope. I'm going to deliver justice and righteousness. I'm going to deliver you a king, one who is of the line of David, who will bring justice. So not only does he offer hope, but he offers that personified in a person, which is an extremely big deal for these people. He offers them something new. He offers them a change. He offers them an opportunity in the midst of this deep hopelessness. Now, this is a big promise, right? The what of the promise is big. It's justice, it's righteousness, it's hope, it's redeeming, it's redemption. But I think everyone in the room knows that a promise is only as good as the character of the one who made it, right? Some of us have learned this the hard way. You were promised to be paid back, but the promise was only as good as the character of the person who made it And maybe you didn't see all of that back. Some of you guys were promised and are still recovering from promises that weren't kept. Because the content of the character of the one who made that promise couldn't uphold that end of things. So while the what of this promise is extremely important, God's offering major hope. A change in circumstance, a change in the way that things are going. We have to stop and say, but who's making the promise? People make me promises all the time, but it's only as good as their character. And so now God himself is putting himself out there on the line, putting his word out there to be tested and promises and says, I will bring this to happen. Um, Looking at Hebrews chapter 6, speaking of God's promise, it says this, so God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope, catch on to that, hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is strong and trustworthy, an anchor for the souls that leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. God is defined as one who does not lie, who keeps his promises and holds to his oaths. And then we have hope described as an anchor, something that roots us and holds us in the midst of storms, keeps us in the right place. And while anchors hold on to ships, it also says that in this scenario, we also hold on to the anchor. So we have this hope presented as something stable, but I know that in my own life, a hope doesn't look like me hanging on to a sure and steadfast anchor. It looks more like crossed fingers, and wishful thinking. 
Well, I hope that it goes right. Well, I hope that things turn around. I hope it goes well at work. Well, I hope they show up. Well, I hope things change without any real positive hope. But it's just me standing almost superstitiously hoping that it'll turn out right. So before we go any farther, would you do me this uh, honor? Would you pray with me? Would you bow your heads and pray? Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for every person in this room. I believe that you want to speak to them today. God, I believe um, that you've seen them in, in the places that they're hopeless. Um, in the places that they may be quietly hopeless, only to themselves. Um, as hopelessness is a condition of the soul, God, you know the condition of your flock. You know the condition of every person here, Lord. And I pray that you would give them hope today. I pray that you would encourage them today. I pray that you would strengthen them today through your word and through your promises, Lord. So would you speak and make yourself known. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So like Hillary mentioned, I was recently married uh, to my beautiful wife, Taylor. I brought a photo of her. Yeah, there she is. Man, I miss my wife. Uh, that's my wife, Taylor, and so we were married in October, uh, so it's been a little over a month, uh, still a rookie, but it's, it's going well, and I love it, and I'm excited about it, and so it's been this fun journey of coming together, uh, you know, different families, different cultures coming together, you know, Newport's new for me, the boat thing is new for me, sparkling water <laughs> is uh, new for me. And so as we've come together, we have had these cultures blend, and it's been fun thus far. I know it can be a point of, like, tension, but it's been fun. I come from a uh, Tongan family. A lot of confused nods, like being polite but still confused. Uh-huh. Okay, Tongan, we'll, we'll, start, we'll start at Hawaii. Everyone know what Hawaii is? Native Hawaiians, the beach, tropical, South Pacific. We got it. Okay, some of you guys have heard of Samoans. Yes, you've known they were bullies at your school, probably on the football team. Okay, so Hawaiians, Samoans, then you have Tongans. So Tongans are very much like Samoans, just more masculine. <laughs> Don't text your Samoan friends right now. I'm a long line of angry Samoans after service. Uh, but a part of Tongan culture is that you have large families, not just physically, but in number. Like you have a lot of kids my dad is one of 14. Wow, yeah, one of 14. It's a small island, not much to do, and that's how it happens, okay? So uh, my dad's one of 14. So we, being the lunatics that we are six months into <laughs> this new marriage, are talking about babies and baby names because we're freaking crazy. And uh, we're talking about it, and it's fun, and we're enjoying the conversation, and it's going great. And so this past Monday... Uh, we decided, my wife decided, she was going to help out a friend and babysit two kids, a four-year-old named Mason and a kid who was five months old named Arlo. And I'm still fresh in the game to this whole husband thing, so I'm trying to be supportive. Babe, I'll go with you. I'll help out. Like, you don't have to do that alone. That's two kids. I'll be there, sweetheart. Don't you worry. And so we show up, and it's going great in the first 30 minutes. <laughs> I'm hanging out with Mason. We're playing like Junior Monopoly. He's making up rules. I don't really care. It's just you're not crying or freaking out. You're good. She's carrying Arlo. I think, oh, how beautiful, how sweet. Um, until we realize that Arlo is teething right now. And so he'd go from sweet, beautiful child 
who could be a model for Jesus in a manger to like red face screaming. I'm so confused about how you can be so angry and so little at the same time. I mean like screaming to the point that he can't breathe and he's coughing and he's spitting up and he's losing his mind and somehow now I'm carrying the baby. I got a full on like ergo thing strapped to me and I don't know where to go or what's going on. And I don't know if we're going to make it, you know, 37 minutes in to a five-hour ordeal. So we're coming to the final hour here, and there's about five minutes left, and I can't wait for our friend Ez to walk through the door, kindly hand her both of her children, and be on my way. I mean, I'm ready for nap time. Like, I am exhausted. And then we get a text from Ez saying, sorry, the interview's running long. Uh, might be another hour or so, I'll let you know. Well, I'm going to let you know. <laughs> you better get down here and get your kids right now. We didn't say that because we love Jesus, I think. <laughs> and so she's taking her time, and I promise you, I was sitting, waiting at the door, kind of watching the kid. One was taking a nap. Arla was still sitting there, still just like, be calm, it's okay, it's okay. Every time I heard a car, like, pull into the parking lot, Ez? <laughs> nope. I was sitting on the edge of my seat waiting in eager anticipation of Ez's arrival. See, that's the expectation for us, is that we wait with that same eager expectation of God. But let me tell you, as time went on, it became harder and harder to wait patiently. See, waiting is easy when the time is short. But as time goes on, waiting in anticipation becomes difficult, right? Things get in the way. Circumstances become strenuous. And as waiting gets difficult, as hoping gets difficult, because, man, let me tell you, I was hoping, we explore other options. What are my other ways around this issue? I know that I'm just supposed to wait and wait here and do what I'm supposed to be doing. But man, we explore other options when the tension gets high and waiting just isn't cutting it. I need real life answers in real time. I need something to fix this. Now I don't have time to wait. I live in the real world. I don't have time for this. And so we explore other options. Israel was notorious for exploring other options. Before Moses could make it down the mountain with the law, they had already explored other options. And so here we see Israel's been doing the same thing. Jeremiah 32, verses 33 and 35. They have turned to me their back and not their faces, and though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this, an abomination. Israel has gone off after being made this promise, and they've explored other options. They've tried to figure out other ways to make this happen, to make this work, to put things together, to find another way to receive what was already promised. They've tried to see their way around it. Now it says that they sought after other gods. They turned their back to God and sought the hope through other avenues, through other gods, through other idols, 
other images. They've sought them this way. Now, we can explore other options very similarly to this, and it can be extremely subtle. You see, I think there's three things that I want to point out. You can explore other options religiously or non-religiously and be extremely close to the same. Now, how do we explore other options religiously? Israel had set up systems to get what they had wanted. When Jesus arrived, they had set up more systems to get what they had wanted. They had set up more sacrifices, more things to do, more rituals, more traditions to try and manipulate and create something that would get them what they wanted. Or the non-religious that say, nah, I don't need that. I'm going to go a different route. I can do it on my own. I can be my own God. I can make this happen. I can create. I can manipulate. I can move things around. If I just pull myself up by my bootstraps, I can make this happen. Whether it's a religious avenue or not means nothing because at the end of the day, it really comes down to this effort to be self-sufficient. A step towards self-sufficiency where you become your own greatest hope. How does that even sound? I challenge you, say that out loud to yourself. I am my own greatest hope. I'm my own greatest hope, my ability, my will, my self-discipline, my power, my authority, my talent, my wisdom. I'm my greatest hope. Now that's an encouraging thought, isn't it? Everything's going to be right in the world because I got me, and me is all that I need, and I'll make it happen. Growing up, I had one younger brother named Colin who I love, he's like my best friend, um, really, really my best friend, love him to death, we're only two years apart, we grew up together, vastly different personalities, um, I was very much a mama's boy, just whatever mom wanted to be, was who I wanted to be, and needed to be, and my brother was introverted, she was just the child that you want to have, because he'll play with his toys by himself, sit in a closet, and he had these, uh, had these action figures, like we were super into wrestling, the Rock was the man, and my brother had just boxes of these action figures, these little toys. And me, being the sweet older brother that I was, would come over and watch him playing and be like, nerd, <laughs> look at your little toys, blah, blah, blah. So nice, right? And I used to always tease him about it and tease him about these little figurines, and he'd just be in his own head, just imagination, creating fights and scenarios, and guys are talking to each other, and they're jumping in and out of the ring, and it's a full deal. Now, as a man, when I think about this idea of these little figurines, I very much play with these figurines in my own heart in that I have this picture in my heart, in my soul, of a better me. It's like a little action figure that looks like me, but better. That's like me, but smarter. But faster. But more of what I need to be. More of what I would like to be. A self-sufficient guy who's strong enough. A Christian who doesn't need to lean on God. A Christian who's independent. A Christian who doesn't need to tell his thoughts not to think that. Who doesn't need to lean into community? Who doesn't need to lean into God every single day? One who's grown beyond a need for grace. 
one who's become so righteous that I don't even think the wrong thoughts anymore, that I don't even consider those things. We can all turn our backs on God so subtly, even when we think we're seeking the right thing. If we're seeking self-sufficiency, we're seeking hope in ourselves. And if we're seeking hope in ourselves, we're in a bad spot if we're our greatest hope. And so they were seeking that. They were seeking other avenues. They were seeking other ways to make this happen. And God delivers. God delivers a greater hope. Matthew 1, verse 20. But as he considered these things, this is talking about Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary uh, as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The promise that Jeremiah had given was delivered, but not only was that hope delivered, God over-delivered, didn't he? See, in the time of Jeremiah, they were just looking to be free. They were looking for someone to overthrow the Babylonians. They're looking for the same thing when Jesus arrives. They're looking for Rome and Caesar, who's taxed them and oppressed them, to be removed. They're looking for a change in circumstances. God over-delivers. He gives them, number one, more than they asked for. They asked for a change in circumstance. They asked for a relenting of difficulty. They asked for things to be made easy. They asked for luxury. God gives them more than that. He gives them more than they asked for and more than they expected. They weren't expecting God himself. They were just expecting a change in circumstances. And lastly, he gave them more than they deserved. They had turned their back. They had sought their own ways. They had sought to be their own gods and bring hope to themselves. They had abandoned eager anticipation and waiting and hope to go out on their own. He gives them more than they asked for, more than they expected, and more than they deserved, yet God gives it anyways. Yet God over-delivers on the promise. They wanted a change of circumstances, but not a change from what created the circumstances, right? Right? Like children, they just wanted the bad thing to stop, but they didn't want to acknowledge what created the bad thing. I've been married for a month, and I understand this. Wife is bothered with me because I didn't do what I was supposed to do. So I don't really care how what I was supposed to do or not doing what I was supposed to do hurt her. I just want to change in the circumstance which is you being mad at me. I'm sorry, please stop being mad at me. Just be nice to me so I can feel loved and feel like you care about me. I just want to change in circumstance rather than changing the very thing that created that circumstance. They wanted to change the consequences of their sin without getting to the root of the issue, and that was, in fact, their sin. That was, in fact, their hearts that had turned the other way. They weren't seeking 
reconciliation of a relationship. They weren't seeking to be brought back together with God. They weren't seeking to be restored that way. They were merely seeking change what's difficult. Change what I don't like. Whether we have a relationship, I don't really, doesn't make a difference. I just need the bottom line to be the bottom line. Take care of this. And though that is their stance and their position, God still delivers. God's faithfulness to his promise has nothing to do with your character and everything to do with his. God's faithfulness, God's character, does not hinge upon your own. God's faithfulness to his promises in your life are consistent with who he is, not who you are. We are not playing this cosmic game, tallying our righteous acts against our unrighteous. We are not manipulating the God of the universe into blessing us and giving us what we want. God is faithful to himself. And he sends his son, Jesus, and it says that he sent him to do what? To save them from their sins. God over-delivered on this promise in a major way. And now let's look at what that promise, what the actual delivery of this promise accomplishes. Galatians chapter 4, looking at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman under the law to redeem those or to buy back those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now catch this today, church. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Now this is important. Verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but you're an heir, and if you're an heir, then you're a son. Positionally, God has changed everything. They were looking for a change in circumstance, and God makes a change in relationship. God says, at the fullness of time, I will deliver on this promise. Circumstances may not change, but the thing that will change is our relationship. And now you can know, when I'm dealing with you, when I'm making promises, when we're conversing, it's a promise from a father to a son or a father to a daughter. Some of you guys are still recovering from broken promises made by broken parents. Some of us, like myself, are so afraid of becoming parents that won't keep our promises to our kids who we love so much. God says, I delivered on my promise before I reconciled the relationship. How much more now than will I keep my promises to my sons and to my daughters? If while you were yet a sinner, I sent my son for you to die for you, how much more now that I've sent Jesus, that I delivered and over-delivered on a promise I sent more than I could ever send, I gave you everything I had, 
in my son, how much more now will I deliver on my promise? How much more now can you trust in my hope? Can it be an anchor for your soul? Can you rest all of your being on this promise? I sent him to save you from your sins. What more is there? I will be there. I will keep my promises. I am a good father. You can trust me. I am God. It is impossible for me to lie. I do not falter on my oaths. I don't step back on my promises, but I lean in. And if it wasn't on you before, it isn't on you now. I'm doing the heavy lifting in this relationship. I'm holding this thing up. We are not exploring other options. We're not seeking other gods. We're not seeking you to be self-sufficient and do what you weren't created to do. We've moved beyond that because our hope has arrived. And if God delivered that hope, he will surely deliver us again. He will surely deliver us daily and he will surely keep his ultimate promise to receive us back. We're able to especially us, church, hope for today and for tomorrow because we know of the relationship that we have. We're not counting on the results of altered circumstances. We're not counting on a life absent from difficulty, sitting in the lap of luxury because our hearts have been reconciled to the one who made us. Because God himself looks at you and says, I am pleased couldn't be more proud of you. You don't have to go searching or seeking. You're mine. I delivered then, I'll deliver now. Hold on to that. Hang on to that trust. Hang on to me. So I want to challenge you as we look at this final verse and I want to invite the band to, to come back up as we close. Uh, for you charismatic people, that means we're about to get spiritual. For you looking to get out of here, it means we're almost done. So, <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised us is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now this is where stuff gets practical. We're talking about ideas of hope and principles and what God has done. But what do you do with this today? The writer says we hold fast to our confession, but also we're not called to hold fast to these promises alone. You're not called to hold fast to this hope by yourself to walk into these doors, get enough hope for the week and walk out and hope that it's going to last you. You're called to meet together and encourage one another for as long as it is called today. That means every day of your life, you are not called to sit around people who need encouragement, who are holding on to the same hope because God knows these hands get tired from holding on, right? God knows that the spirit is willing, but the flesh can be weak, Right? And there are people in this room who need your encouragement. Maybe you're saying, I need some encouragement. Scripture says as we hold fast to this hope, encourage those around you who are holding on to the same hope, who are clinging to the same anchor. Encourage them, strengthen 
their hands. Encourage their hearts. Speak life into them. Magnify God over their circumstances. And as you magnify God for others, you naturally magnify him in your own heart. As he grows in those around you, he grows in you. As you begin to step out into more of who God has created you to be, as you step into his body and you lean into that, God creates that for us. So I want to encourage you, as you're going through this week, as we leave today, to hold fast to your hope, because the God who delivered Jesus will surely deliver again. Hold fast to that hope. Encourage one another. Do not forsake one another. And hang on to that. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this church. Um, Lord, I pray that as we enter this season, this season that's supposed to be symbolic of hope, that you would reach out to the hopeless, you'd reach out to those who have struggled even to hear this message today because their sin is so big. They view their sin as more than you could handle. They see their circumstances as too big. They see everything as being too much to overcome, God. Lord, we know that nothing's too great for you. We know that nothing's beyond your ability to step into. You're not intimidated by a circumstance. You're not afraid of sin. You're not afraid of our struggles, but you've gone before us. You can empathize with us. You felt the pain of rejection. You felt the pain of loneliness, of separation, of hurt, of pain, and you can meet us in that. So Jesus, I pray that you provide hope. You put hope in hearts. Help this church to know the way that they're loved by you. Help them to hang on to that, God, onto your faithfulness. You do not change. You're the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, God. So would you speak now as we worship you, as we give you praise, as we give you glory, as we sing out your praise. God, would you speak and would you continue to minister? We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.